the past few weeks have seen massive rollbacks on civil rights in the United States. The most widely covered of these is the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 court decision that protected the right to abortion at the federal level. In conjunction with this, trans health care, voting rights, and the separation of church and state are all under attack. These aren't separate issues, but interconnected fronts in the same wider struggle for freedom. Both Taylor and I live in states where the future status of abortion is up in the air, and bans are being actively pursued by state legislators. We'll always support the right to safe and accessible abortion care, and portions of our Patreon donations will be going to support organizations who are doing the work to keep this fundamental right available to Americans. And now on with the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. I'm Tanner, joined as usual by Taylor. Uh, first, we'd like to thank our new patrons, Callie, Michael, Disco Volante, and Daniel. As always, you know, we appreciate your support, uh, and we Sincerely hope you continue to enjoy the show. Um, we love seeing everyone on Patreon, um, and we love that you're you know enjoying what we do, and you know we want to keep doing it for you. Uh, so with that, uh, now we need to introduce the third member of the show today. Uh, so put on your finest Reg Grundies and give a warm welcome to Australian Podcasting Hall of Famer Josie Spicer. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you for letting me invite myself onto your show. <laughs> no, that was cool. That was cool. I think it'd be much easier if all of our if all guest hosts just did that say, hey, like, this is what I'm doing. And I'm coming on your show. Um, <laughs> also, thank you for your flexibility and pushing back our recording time today. Yeah, that's okay. Oh, good. Hoping not to hear on the next episode of Hill to Die on. Is it okay to postpone something 10 minutes before it happens? <laughs> and I'll just trash talk you folks the whole time. Yeah. It's fine. All right. So I guess we'll do our normal thing. We have our media slash, you know, no current events check in. What's everyone been up to? Not much here. I don't know. Work. Um, bad things in the news. Nothing constructive, I guess I could say. But uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. Just trying to get through it right now. Right. Yeah. That's what you got to do. Josie, how about you? Oh, well, uh, I was expecting you folks to be very bleak with the whole Roe v. Wade overturn. Um, so I made a positive media check-in. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah. So my media check-in is actually beyond the breakers, uh, <laughs> getting real meta. Um, yeah, I guess I just wanted to start off by saying I love how this podcast, like, the podcast topic of wrecks and maritime disasters is quite narrow on the face of it, but it's been a great way to learn more about like broader history and politics of the world. Um, you know, learning a little bit more about like Jesuits in Japan, like that's not a thing I would have come across. And yeah, like when you folks are able to put these incidents into context, there's actually quite a lot more to be learned than what happened to the vessel itself. And yeah, I guess from a personal standpoint, um, I've also enjoyed being able to like geek out at ships between your show and um, other podcasts like Black Box Down, which looks at flight incidents. 
I've been able to enjoy topics that at least in the time and place of where I grew up, um, you know, planes and trains and ships are quite gendered interests. And I wasn't like forbidden from learning about these things, but it certainly wasn't encouraged and would have been considered a bit uncouth, I guess. Um, yeah. So now I'm an adult, I'm able to learn about all these things in a really accessible way. And I just wanted to say thank you. Awesome. Oh, it's great to have you on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, that's all great to hear. That doesn't help your <laughs> listeners, but uh, yeah. No, that's awesome. It's great to hear. We just like to hear things that make us feel good. So, hey, that's <laughs> right. yeah, I just like hearing people say nice things about it. Ah, oh, good. <laughs> I mean, for me, I I still don't think trains are very cool. I know like half of our listeners are going <laughs> to pillory me for that, but <laughs> me, me. <laughs> I'm getting there. I didn't think ships were all that cool like two years ago. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah, for me, I guess what have I been up to? Um, once again, a lot of doom scrolling. Uh, yeah. Too much of that, probably. But yeah, listening to a lot of podcasts. I actually went through uh, Lions Led by Donkeys, some of the old ones that for whatever reason I just like had skipped over for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some did some cleanup there. Our podcast father, Joe Kasabian. Yeah, I mean, that, that was probably one of the most uh, progenitor ideas uh, for the podcast. Oh, cool. Well, I, if in case you just don't know, I had Joe Kasabian from Lions Led by Donkeys on an episode of A Hill to Die on where I uh, we chatted about scared straight programs <laughs> and how awful they nice. are. Um, so if any listeners want to get really f-ing depressed, but then also laugh about farts, that might be a good episode for you to <laughs> uh, dive into. <laughs> Sorry. That was a very good one. That whole that whole series of episodes has been good. Um <laughs> on the, the you know the reality tv type stuff yeah it was great in that episode to hear anytime people talk about the dare program is enjoyable mm. <laughs> yeah. as someone who still remembers the songs we would sing like the d <laughs> i won't do drugs a won't have an attitude <laughs> yeah that was great to hear people talk about that so <laughs> all right well i guess that brings us to the order of the day this is episode 66 we're recording here of Beyond the Breakers. Uh, we're going to talk about a ship called the Pasha Bulker, and Josie is going to tell us all about it. Yes. So I figured I'd just like give you folks a breakdown of how I'm going to go through this episode. So first, I'll introduce the ship. Um, I'll introduce Newcastle, Australia, where the incident occurred. I'll give a rundown of the incident itself, along with the rescue efforts, the salvage operation, and then finally, the more lighter side, the cultural impact of the Pasha Bulka. So the ship and crew. For this episode, I've come to talk to you about a bulk carrier, currently known as MV Xanthia, previously known as MV Drake, but its initial and most well-known name was Pasha Bulka, which is what I'll be using in this episode. Um, at the time of the incident, Pasha Bolka had only been on the water for less than a year. Panama was its flag of convenience, but the ship was owned by a Japanese company. Pasha Bolka had a gross weight of 40,000 tons. Um, the length, and by the way, for you Yanks, I've gone ahead and converted as much as I could to cater to your <laughs> imperial impediment. Um, so, yeah, um, Pasha Bolka was 225 metres in length or 738 feet, had a moulded breadth of around 32 metres or 105 feet, and had a moulded depth of 19.8 metres or 65 feet. Uh, its crew capacity was 22. At the time of the incident, Pasha Bolka was on its third call to Newcastle, Australia. 
Most of the ship's crew had been on board for the nine months since the ship was delivered to its owner the previous year. The master and chief engineer on the ship were South Korean, and the remaining crew were from the Philippines, and English was the working language on the ship. The master had graduated from a South Korean maritime university in 1982 and had been on the seas since. He'd sailed on many different ship types before the incident and had also commanded bulk carriers larger than Pashabolka. I said most of the ship's crew had been on board for the nine months since it was delivered to its owners, but um, the master was not one of these people. This was his first assignment with the ship's managers, and he joined the ship only one month before the incident, and it was his first visit to Newcastle as master. So, Newcastle, Australia. I'll be referring to the area where the Pashabolka incident occurred by its settler colonial name of Newcastle, but this area was known as Mullabimba by the traditional custodians, the Awabakal and Waramai people, for thousands of years before being called Newcastle. It's situated on the east coast of Australia in the state of New South Wales. Its port mostly handles bulk cargoes and coal exports comprise over 90% of the port's trade, exceeding 80 million tonnes for the financial year ending in June 2007. It is the world's largest loading port for coal, with two-thirds of which is destined for Japan. Um, I have a question. Yeah, go for it. I was I was reading about the, the coal here. and. I had to wonder, is this a coincidence or was it named Newcastle because of the coal? I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> oh, Since if... Newcastle in England is such a big coal spot. Oh, shoot. I did not know that. And so I cannot answer that question for you, but okay. that would be a... I was thinking it would be such a... It would be a massive coincidence if, if, if it just happened to also have coal. So yeah, I was I was going to ask and see if that was something you knew. Because when I saw it talking about Coles and Newcastle, I was like, I was briefly like transported, like, where where are we in the world right now? (laughs) So yeah, cool. That's interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But also like, I don't know if you get some Brits calling things, other things, it's you're going to get a Newcastle with coal under it. (laughs) Maybe just, yeah, (laughs) but I don't know. I don't know. That would actually be really interesting to find out. So the population of Newcastle itself sits at about 155,000. So the Newcastle anchorage was a bloody mess at the time of the incident. Um, The queuing system was first in best dressed with absolutely minimal scheduling or coal allocation. The number of ships in the anchorage could reach absurdly high numbers, with 57 being the number of ships queued when the Pasha-Bolka incident occurred. But this was nowhere near as high as it would get. The anchorage itself was fully exposed to the weather, with deep water near the coast compelling ships to anchor fairly close to the coast. Weather conditions, particularly the swell, are known to deteriorate rapidly, and there have been serious incidents in the past with Newcastle anchorage, one of these being a grounding of Cigna on Stockton Beach, which resulted in an actual wreck back in 1974, and the other two incidents were collisions. East Coast lows, which was what was happening at the time of the incident, bring gale or storm force winds with heavy coastal rain, very rough seas, prolonged heavy swells. Uh, It's quite challenging to predict the location and movement of the centre of these lows, so the Bureau of Meteorology aims to give sufficient advance notice to mariners so they can take whatever precautions are necessary. So 
these like the exposure to adverse weather at Newcastle Anchorage and the potential risks are well recognized and guidance and instructions on how to account for these risks uh, are part of sailing direction publications such as the Australia Pilot, which was on board the Pasha Bolker at the time of the incident. This leads me to the section I have called, What the F*** Happened Here? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... I in the, did you receive my email at all with the images? Uh let's see. I am guilty of not checking. I don't think so unless they went to spam. That's where they are. Cool. Okay. I was like someone's just going to get a whole lot of pics of ships. <laughs> oh, very nice. Yes, we have the pictures now. Okay. So, um I've just got figure 14 there, um just so you can kind of visualize everything that I'm about to read out. So let me know when you're ready to go. I'm good. I got it. You're good? Cool. I was just thinking about the name Nobby's Beach here. I'm (laughs) I'm ready to go. There's so many good names. Yeah, I had to. uh, I was very restrained while writing. Um, (laughs) So what the f*** happened here? A lot of this information I got directly from the official report into the Pashabulka incident that was released by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, or ATSB. I'll send you folks all of my sources, so if anyone wants to have a gander, they can. Uh, I've also sent you folks figure 14 from the report, which shows Pasha Bulker's Mr. Bean ass heading towards Nobby's Beach, <laughs> where it was grounded. So let's find out what the f*** happened here. Pasha Bulker arrived off the coast of Newcastle on the 23rd of May 2007, The weather was good. The master of the ship anchored further from the shore than was required with sufficient swinging room. The master stated to the investigators that anchorage was good, with good holding ground, but appeared to not have considered the risks of the weather-exposed location, nor was he aware of guidance provided in publications on board the ship, such as the aforementioned Australia pilot, which addressed Newcastle anchorage and local weather specifically. In fact, it turned out that the passage plan for the voyage to Newcastle that had been prepared by the second mate did not include any references to local weather. The master had not signed his approval of the plan and the chief mate had not acknowledged reading it. Do you folks sense any red flags yet? Am I being obvious? (laughs) We've uh, we've had stories where people have totally ignored the weather and they're usually fine. (laughs) That's why they're on your podcast? Exactly, because they yeah. did such a great job. <laughs> it's the Well Done Ship podcast, yes. <laughs> um, so now we skip to the 7th of June. The master noted the weather forecast and gale warning, but failed to note the caveat in the forecast, which stated that wind gusts could be 40% stronger than the average wind speed forecast and that maximum waves could be twice as high. He did, as a precaution, fear additional anchor cable and confirmed that the main engine could be used at short notice. He napped during the day as he anticipated the need to monitor the weather at night. Since the Pasha Bulka was a new ship, he believed the anchor's holding power was particularly good, with 11 shackles of cable deployed and that the anchor would hold in winds of up to 50 knots or um, 92 k's an hour or 57 miles an hour. Knowing what I've already told you, can you detect just like in the last two sections there in regards to the anchor and the warnings, any red flags? Taylor, you're the ship guy. 
It's okay. You don't uh, have to get it right. Are we going to be in a are, are we going to be in a dragging of the anchor situation here in a second? Oh, 100%. <laughs> uh, because that's, that, that's my big concern. That's a, that's a lot of wind force on this vessel. It will drag that anchor. Um, I probably didn't tie it together as well as I had in my head. But so the master, you know, he had accounted for this anger, uh, anchor holding <laughs> up to 50 knots. But um, he didn't know about the whole winds being up to 40% stronger than forecast situation. So, yeah, his even though he thought he calculated it correctly, no, man, no. So I uh, yeah. I I did have to look this up because I I noted that in the report and it said it was measuring the amount of anchor in shackles. What? And I had and I had no idea what that meant. I don't either. I have no clue. So I I had to look this up. So I learned a new measurement today. <laughs> One shackle is equal to fifteen fathoms. Right. Wow. Okay. Okay. Which would be there you go ninety feet or twenty seven and a half meters. So. There we are. That's a shackle. <laughs> lots of com- lots of conversions lots of today. Conversions. Oh man! So at this point, the master believed that it was best to remain at anchor, as he was concerned that putting the Pasha Bolka to sea in heavy weather would make it difficult to maneuver. However, he didn't consider taking additional. Do you say ballast? Is that? Yep. Yeah. 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 Cool. Additional ballast, nor filling the ships for and aft peak tanks. He had no plan to depart the anchorage at any particular time or if the wind reached a particular speed. He made an early decision to take no further action unless he was compelled to or in the case of the anchor dragging, which is a very good plan. The investigators determined that this was based on his inadequate understanding of anchor holding power, heavy weather ballast and limitations of the Newcastle anchorage in adverse weather conditions. It's really interesting, actually. Um, like I know here, like the like the U.S. Navy, for example, if there's a hurricane on the East Coast, they'll go ahead and send their ships out into the ocean. Like for this exact reason, that oh. if you're 30 or 40 miles out to sea, you just ride it out. You know, it's a modern vessel. It's, it'll be fine unless you're the Alfaro and you sail directly into the middle of it. <laughs> but um you don't want to be like right offshore for this like exact reason that uh, yes. <laughs> eventually you get that fun picture where uh, you see the beach and you see a big ship that shouldn't be there. Yes, I so good. The the photos of the Pashabolka incident just they make me laugh especially cuz I know no one died. So um <laughs> they're just ridiculous. So it was also determined that confirmation bias informed his decision to stay put as very few other ships in the anchorage put to sea during the evening of the 7th. The master also incorrectly assumed that the Vessel Traffic Information Centre, or VTIC, would instruct ships to put to sea. By 1am on the 8th of June, the wind was at gale force and increasing. Pasha Bolka's yawing had increased, swell had increased, and the atmospheric pressure had fallen markedly. Weather reports and warnings continued to confirm deteriorating conditions and a number of ships started dragging their anchors. The situation was becoming significantly worse, and the master appears to have ignored these warnings, further suggesting a confirmation bias. Sorry, can you hear that water in the background? No. Okay, good. It seems appropriate for a shipwreck podcast. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. it would be soothing. (laughs) Ambience, right. It's definitely not just someone flushing the toilet. Um, (laughs) 
The investigators found that he definitely wasn't the only master who had been susceptible to confirmation bias and incorrectly assumed that VTIC would instruct them to put to sea, as they found that of the 57 ships anchored at Newcastle, only several put to sea in view of the deteriorating weather and before the onset of gale force winds. At the 1am mark on the 8th of June, when the winds were consistently at gale force, 49 ships still remained at anchor. Most ships only got underway after dragging their anchors and less than a third of the masters indicated that they already had or then took on heavy weather ballast. Putting to sea before the onset of gale force winds and deteriorating weather was the recommended course of action detailed in the Australia pilot. And we, we know now that no one looked at the Australia pilot. <laughs> People should read the Australia pilot if they're in the f***ing ocean off of Australia. <laughs> Now we skip to 5 a.m. The wind was at a strong gale force and the ship nearest to Pasha Bolka started dragging its anchor. Other ships were also finally getting underway and more than half of the ships in the anchorage had already departed. These events prompted the Pasha Bolka's master to remain on the bridge, but not to weigh anchor or put to sea. 9.25 a.m. Pasha Bolka's anchor predictably started to drag. It was only when the master was certain that the anchor was dragging that he decided to bring it in. At 7.10 a.m., the anchor was weighed in the difficult conditions. The master's frequent use of the main engine and helm indicated that he took adequate measures to prevent damage to the equipment. He appears to not have been concerned by the ship's progress towards the coast as the anchor dragged more rapidly when the cable shorted while it was being heaved in. I feel like he should be concerned about that. I feel like he should. Um, I... I'm starting to to suspect this gentleman was born without eyes. Um, (laughs) At this point in the report, the investigators note that the master had been awake for most of the night monitoring the weather. He decided to remain awake during the night to monitor the weather rather than defining limits, such as wind speed or time. He'd only had two hours of sleep in the prior 24 hours leading up to the time that the anchor was weighed in on the 8th of June. There was obviously going to be a knock-on effect that the master had little (laughs) sleep and his later actions and decisions would have been influenced by fatigue to some degree. Holy This As as someone who works overnight, um, lack of sleep is not great for your decision-making, especially in in something like that. That, uh, It's awful. You know, you're you're processing slower. Um, A lot of studies, I mean, even show that it's the same as basically being drunk. Like you you, you process things slower. You don't make as good decisions. It's it's definitely a known thing. Yeah, absolutely. And just like, I feel like, again, I I believe at the start of the episode, I don't know if we're recording yet. um, You folks are saying everything leads back to capitalism. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) the, the pressures of, you know, needing to save as much fuel and and not damage the ship and all this stuff um so many accidents occur due to fatigue rest will cure everything except for the case where the master goes to breakfast in in the passion blogger incident which i'll get to in a sec um by the time the anchor was reported to be away the ship was 1.9 kilometers or 1.2 miles from the coast By the time the anchor was secure and the crew had cleared the deck, the ship was only 1.6 kilometres or 0.9 miles away. The master appeared untroubled by the high-risk situation (laughs) they found themselves in. At 8.09am, the master asked the third mate if the harbour was closed, indicating that he was uncertain about the status of the port and the situation of it. 
He did, however, turn the ship away from the coast and engine speed was increased to manoeuvring full ahead, although its speed fluctuated in the heavy sea conditions. At 8.20, Pasha Bolka was slowly moving away from the coast. The master did note that the nearby ship Sea Confidence was in difficulty at the time and taking additional ballast. He commented that the weather was very rough, but he remarked to the chief mate that Pasha Bolka's stability was good. It was not good. <laughs> at 8.26, the master ordered a course change to make better progress away from the coast. However, as soon as the ship was steadied on this heading, he left the bridge for breakfast. The investigators noted that under these circumstances, leaving the bridge without even confirming the effect of the course alteration suggests a lack of caution on the master's part, that he was not fully aware of the possible danger the ship was in, considering uh, there was a dangerous lee shore one mile or 1.6 k's away. I'm thinking of some episodes. Uh, there's at least one episode I know of, of Black Box Down and or uh, Take to the Sky where the captain has the co-pilot do something and then leaves to go to the bathroom or something. And like, mm-hmm. right. I'm going to be gone for like five minutes tops. Just yeah, don't just, mess this just up. Keep it going. here, <laughs> And that's when it happens. Yes. At this point, the investigators suggest that he may have been denying or flat out rejecting information, um, which conflicted with his expectations and decisions. So like, he's probably seeing the shore as just like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. That's not land. <laughs> Typical man. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> bringing that back to like black box down and stuff, it it kind of um, makes me think of a lot of those issues where people don't trust their instruments and yes. how you can't visually rely on a lot of things when you're flying. And sort of the same situation here, like how different does land look when you're two miles away versus three miles away? Like you don't really know. Right. Yeah, that's actually that's a really good thing. Like I don't think I could sort of figure that out eyeballing it no there's a lot of it's like i was saying before this is the first ship report i've ever read and the amount of tie-in with like um air crash investigations and like aircraft incidents like yeah it's all it's always the same it's always the same things and it's always the case where it's like all these little decisions Mm -hmm. compounding to creating this like total shitstorm. Um, exactly. Yeah. So the chief mate and third mate were on the bridge during the 15 minutes that the master was at breakfast. And it was only during this time that there was any evidence that they were involved in monitoring the ship's navigation. <laughs> incredible, incredible areas. <laughs> I, I, um, <laughs> while reading this, I was reading this report in, my lounge room and I just like yelped and squealed a few times and like <laughs> cackled and my son kept getting annoyed with me because I'd be silent for ages and then I let out a shriek when I'm like you f-ing idiot <laughs> oh man um so yeah for the most part they merely watched as the events unfolded and had little input or interaction with the master other than responding to his orders Following breakfast, the master returned to the bridge and became more concerned. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> became more concerned when he saw that the heading of 140 degrees had fallen to 110 degrees to port. So this is when we start <laughs> with the Mr. Bean movements on that little map I gave you before. <laughs> um he asked for an increase in engine speed and this appeared to have the desired effect. The master relaxed and told the engineer that a further increase in speed was unnecessary. The helmsman brought the ship back 
to a heading of 140 degrees. And with the wind ahead, um, had this been maintained, the Pasha Balka would not, like, would probably have cleared the coast in an easterly mm-hmm. direction and everything would be fine. So on a heading of 140 degrees, the 30-degree change in the ship's heading from 110 and the increase in engine speed had a positive effect, but this was apparently not enough for our genius shipmaster as he did not want the ship to head any further north. And this wasn't exactly explained why he didn't want it to go any further north, but I'm guessing probably fuel usage and, like, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, doesn't want to get further away especially with the first in best dressed queue system. <laughs> so uh, because he didn't want to go any further north, he ordered the helmsman to make a heading of 160 degrees, putting the wind on the port. Do you say bow or bow? I had this argument with, with my husband. I don't know what it is. <laughs> bow. Bow. All, all of these are great opportunities to convince Josie that Americans say things that we don't actually say. That's that's yeah. actually no, a great point. that's so mean. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> oh, oh no, now I'm going to get paranoid. I won't ask you again. <laughs> um, but yeah, so putting the wind on the port bow. Now, the investigators noted that this might have been an okay decision to make at the time, but given the conditions, this manoeuvre should have been carefully controlled by the master himself. In response to the 160-degree order, the helmsman applied maximum starboard rudder and the ship's head went through the wind and rapidly starboard. At 9.09, the ship's heading was well past 160 degrees. The helmsman informed the master when he could no longer control the ship's heading, even with maximum port rudder. That has to be a bad, bad feeling to hear that. <laughs> I can't control it. I'm, I'm out, man. I can't do this. <laughs> I start like mentally making my will when it's like icy and my car doesn't quite stop in time at the stop sign. <laughs> and so like I drive a Honda Civic. And so if I lost control of a of a bulk freighter, I think I would be a little bit more <laughs> upset. <laughs> right? Yeah, I can totally f-ing relate to that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just the amount of like, from what I can tell, it's like this weird mix of overconfidence, but also not wanting to rise above your place in the hierarchy as well. So it's like... It's similar to what you were saying, the how familiar this story sounds to anyone that listens to the air crash type stuff. Um, it's like we say a lot so much. Um, it's the crew or bridge resource management of someone who's a subordinate not being empowered to like stand up and be like, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. 100%. We need to fix this. Exactly. And especially because so many like so many of the crew are very experienced like crewmen. So they would be mm-hmm. seeing this being like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't feel right. Should we be that close to land? I don't think so. I, I how, do you, uh, like, how do you tell your captain, like, sir, we're like, we're going to hit Australia. I, yes. I'm waiting for the Bluey Pasha Bulker episode where Bluey learns crew resource management. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm like storing that away in my head. Cause I've, <laughs> That is the intersection of everything that I would spend too much time on. Um, <laughs> amazing. So at nine at nine or nine a.m. after the ship's heading was well past one hundred and sixty degrees, the helmsman informed the master when he could no longer control the ship's heading, even with maximum port rudder. In response, the master told him that he should take action quickly. 
but the master did not change the way he was conning the ship. He wasn't giving rudder orders, monitoring the helmsman actions, nor delegating a mate to monitor the helm. He simply just said, take action quickly. Just <laughs> and then just... He's the kid holding the stick saying, do something. <laughs> like <it's> just... <laughs> Yes, yes. The investigators noted that this order to take action quickly probably only served to confuse the helmsman. <laughs> I agree with them. <laughs> Um, soon after this, while the ship was approaching the coast on a southwesterly heading, the master of the ship responded to a query from VTIC with, don't worry. However, many worry. So <laughs> many worry at this point that he asked the chief engineer to increase engine speed further. At this point, the helmsman was still attempting to return to a heading of 160 degrees. His last order received um, by applying maximum port rudder. At 9.23am, the ship's heading was approaching 180 degrees when the helmsman briefly reduced port rudder, possibly because he did not want to overshoot the ordered heading again um, after the master's early remark. The master most likely did not observe the brief reduction of applied rudder, but he became very concerned when a swing to starboard developed and asked for the maximum engine speed once more. Four minutes later at 9.27, the master declined an offer of VTIC assistance again by advising that the situation would improve after 10 minutes. The <laughs> investigators noted that communication was very poor between the master and bridge team members with no discussion about the situation at hand occurring. That's going to be a bad time. I just don't think that's the right way. I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I just don't think that's very good. Um, at 9.31, the ship's heading was 185 degrees and turning slowly to port. For the first time throughout this entire incident, one of the mates suggested to the master that he should accept assistance. This possibly confused the master because he had decided instead to turn the ship starboard towards the lee shore. It is unlikely that he considered or had time to consider all the risks involved. The report didn't elaborate on how the mate's comment confused him, but at this point I've just written the master off as a f***ing loose unit, so whatever. Like, <laughs> of course he was confused. No one on the bridge at any time discussed the emergency deployment of anchors. It is unlikely that anyone even considered using anchors to turn the ship's head into the wind and thereby reducing its progress towards the coast. When the master decided to turn starboard, he, for the first time since the ship got underway, gave rudder orders only because he could not order a course to steer. As the ship turns, it closes on the coast rapidly. At 9.35, seven minutes after VTIC offered assistance that the master declined, the engine shut down. This increased the master's anxiety and in his speech on the ship's recording, he started to sound distressed. Finally. Um... <laughs> While the engine shutdown didn't help nor hinder the ship at this time, the shutdown did bring the master's attention to the fact that the Pasha Bolka was approaching the shore at a distance of 1.3 Ks or 0.8 miles at 5.5 knots, which is 10 Ks an hour or 6.3 miles an hour. And at this point, he ordered the engine full astern. Um, Okay, so I wrote in my notes, I said, okay, I've got to pause here because while reading this, I remember thinking, okay, this motherfucker is ready for a bad time. He's learned that he's in deep shit, right? And then I read the following sentence. 
At 9.39, the master declined another offer of assistance from VT. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Just doubled down all the way. Yes. <laughs> you can't admit that you were wrong at this point. So, <laughs> Right. I'm on top of the city of Newcastle, but I still got this, guys. It's fine. Um, at this point, the investigators say that he's more or less kidding himself at this point, which, yeah. It's only after the ship's heading started to oscillate between 240 and 270 degrees, you know, 30 whole f***ing degrees, you guys, that he realised his attempt to starboard turn would not succeed. I don't like the word oscillate. It's so, so close to a coast. That seems like a bad time. Yeah. At 9.45, Pasha Bolka was rapidly approaching Nobby's Beach in Newcastle. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, get it out. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm imagining the like the the VTIC radio operator getting a call from the ship now and being like, "Well, look who's come crawling back!" <laughs> right? <laughs> being a total jack about it. We weren't good enough for you 20 minutes ago. Yeah, we're not even f-ing that. Like, um, let me see. It was six minutes prior. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> um, the master would have seen a similar view at 9.45 to that which was photographed on the ship's bridge on the 11th of June. Um, This one's labelled Figure 17, and I've sent it to you folks in an email. Um, It's one I posted to my Twitter feed the other day that made me laugh because it just looks so less than ideal. I love that picture. It just—it looks like a picture that shouldn't exist. Yeah, it looks it photoshopped. It, it quite literally does. Like so many pictures of this after the incident, it it looks like someone photoshopped this because right. If you know anything about these big freighters, you know that like they don't get that close to the shore. Mm-mm. It just—it doesn't happen. No, no. It yeah, does even not. like just as like, as we're hearing about like because as it plays out here, it makes me think of like the um, Norwegian uh, naval vessel we talked about, the Helga Ingstad. Oh yeah. It's just massive overconfidence in what you're doing. <laughs> and in their case, it's like, well, we're, we're the Navy. Like, we got this. And this, I don't know what this guy's excuse is, but he just sounds way overconfident for what he's doing. He, he, we just escaped a lawsuit from the Norwegian government about the Michigan thing. So we need to cool it with bringing up Norwegian. <laughs> the, the Norwegian slander. No mention of them. No, not at all. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know that... Um, friend of the show sarah was in the navy so i don't want to um impugn them too much (laughs) although i'm pretty sure they're anti-navy as well but the master of this ship was um did spend his first two years on sea as part of the navy Mm. so maybe there's just a little bit of a cocky vibe from there you know i don't know yeah just spitballing um to draw a connection back to that i guess at this point with no power just floating this ship has essentially become a very large newston (laughs) yeah (laughs) amazing yes beautiful um at 9 46 the master decided to ask vtic for assistance however at this point it was far too late to prevent the grounding at 9 47 (laughs) vtic acknowledged the request for assistance but for the next seven minutes the master made multiple futile attempts to prevent grounding even while hearing the propeller blades striking rock ledges so (laughs) basically it didn't run aground um like i guess that's what we call it but like onto the shore proper but it was caught on a reef not far from shore okay so now we're grounded um i've taken you through a play-by-play before i continue on to the rescue and salvage and cultural impact um i'll go some through some key findings in the report but first i want to ask you 
do you folks have any thoughts about what I just walked you through or points where if decisions were made differently, maybe I wouldn't be talking to you right now about the Pasha Bolka? I think it just sounds like such a familiar story uh, in Mm -hmm. the sense of, it's like we were saying, it's all these small things, all these little bad decisions that happen, the communication that doesn't happen. It's just amazing. It's the thread that runs through almost all of these stories of it's just a communication breakdown. And it's interesting how you can see that in anything, right? You're working on a project for work in a team and you've worked on good teams. You've worked on bad teams. The good ones communicate, the bad ones don't. It's Mm -hmm. amazing how that just goes through everything. Um, Yes. I don't know. I find that very fascinating. I, I always like, I'm always in this, like, I'm always in two minds. Like I'll always defend like, you know, humans ability to be creative and be dynamic in situations, but then you get, and sorry for present company, but you get dudes. Like (laughs) I I don't think dudes, like the mentality of dudes. Yeah. I think that's what has, that's the common thread is just, yeah, this overconfidence or yeah. Again, like um, hierarchy as well. Um, Mm -hmm. which I guess if you're following like bridge or crew resource management, like that hierarchy is fine because it's all laid out and there are points where it's like, you can speak up and all that. But, um, one of the findings that the ATSB report found was literally no bridge resource management was utilized by the crew at any point, nor the master, but everyone was absolutely trained in bridge resource management. So that is a total failure on everyone's part. So before I get onto some of the key findings in the ATSB report, I just wanted to quickly talk about one little part that I found kind of amusing. Um, in one section of the report, the investigators speculated that a query from VTIC after the grounding occurred, asking if the ship's anchors were still in their horse pipes, made the master realize that he had not considered deploying them. They suspected this because of the following remarks made in the ship's logbook, um, allegedly, retrospectively, and in the master's handwriting. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I would do that. I would do that in English class all the time when I forget to do my homework. <laughs> oh, yeah. Science reports. Yeah, I've totally made these observations. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, man. Um I was hoping that the VTIC message would be like after it's already grounded, like uh so uh hey, how uh how you doing? Huh? How's it going? <laughs> Something smarmy. <laughs> so in in the master's handwriting, allegedly, nine AM contacted Newcastle Harbour for assistance, but never received assistance due to too much traffic. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Um, 9.10 to 9.50. Master tried emergency drop anchor, but never prepared due to heavy weather. No, you are Mr. Beaning around everywhere. Like, you just f***ing... Oh, hi, kitty cat. <laughs> Sorry. Just ignore him. He's, uh, he's beautiful. Um, <laughs> so the investigators note that these entries are not at all consistent with the audio data recorded by the ship's um, voyage data recorder or, like, the actions made. Um, on the ship. There's no audio to indicate that deploying the anchors was considered at any stage of this. So key findings, these are just dot points. First off, there are several critical decisions that had some been made differently could have prevented the grounding entirely. Uh, First of all, failing to ballast the ship for forecast heavy weather. Second, failing to leave anchorage at an early stage. Third, not preparing appropriately for the emergency deployment of the anchors and not deploying the anchors at all. Next, 
conning the ship inappropriately at critical times, including the order to alter the course by 20 degrees, putting the ship's head through strong gale force winds without the master controlling the ship himself. And finally, attempting a final turn starboard towards the lee shore that was less than a mile away. And other points of note, I did already mention the lack of bridge resource management, but there was also the fact that um, the investigators found no evidence that there were misunderstandings or difficulties that could be attributed to language barriers. Like everyone was able to understand each other through English. Larger problems that contributed to the grounding of the Pashabolka included a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of VTIC and that they're merely there in an advisory role and do not provide instructions. Um, mm. This is one of the reasons why many ships in the queue waited for weather-related guidance, which was not issued until the weather conditions were extreme. 21 masters in Newcastle Anchorage even requested permission to weigh anchor and put to sea, something that they absolutely did not need to do. I will say that in this report, I don't think they, I I agree that the master was at fault here, but I do think that there was more that could have been done by people on the ground. But that's just a systemic issue rather than this one case necessarily. Um, And next was the queue system, which led to a greater number of ships anchoring close to the coast and the nature of the first in first served queue may have made ships unwilling to leave Anchorage. And finally, the unwillingness of ships to put to sea at an earlier time may be partly attributed to masters avoiding situations where they might need to explain to the ship's managers like why there's less fuel than predicted or why they are going to take an extra few days or whatever. Um, in terms of the queue system, Pashabolka's legacy did lead to the creation of a new coal ship queuing system where ships now wait their turn to load far out to sea, either way east of Newcastle or up near Papua New Guinea instead of anchoring close to the coast, which is very far away. I was quite surprised by that, but I think there's so much, like ships are waiting there for sometimes like weeks to months for some coal. So I guess whatever, chill out up there for a while. (laughs) A whole bunch of recommendations were made, but I frankly found them too boring to write down. But you can, of course, read those for yourself. What I will note is that the ATSB was unable to determine what, if any, safety actions have been taken by the owners and managers of Pasha Bolka to address the relevant safety issues identified in the report. Finally, in the report was a response by Pasha Bolka's owners. The owners do not accept that the comments and recommendations contained in the report are valid. They did not provide any evidence or argument um, to support this statement, which is frankly hilarious to me. They're just like, no, no, we don't, no. It's just not what happened. Nuh-uh. That um, reminds me of the Marine Electric right there, mm-hmm. where the owners are like, well, she probably ran aground somewhere and then she sank. And the Coast Guard's like, yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> like, that just never happened. Just didn't. That and the Carl D. Bradley, where, you know, you've got the company denying that, like, no, the ship didn't snap in half. We didn't do that. It's not our fault. <laughs> Even those survivors literally saw it snap in we, half. We, we were there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah. The- Amazing. Deny, deny, deny. Incredible. I didn't do yeah. I didn't rig <laughs> So now into the rescue part. Thank you for bearing with me. As luck would have it, two days before we were recording, there was an interview on the Australian Broadcast Network with Glenn Ramplin, who was a major part of the crew crew rescue mission. He was the dude who was on the winch getting people up to safety um, on the helicopters. Mm. So 
Glenn had been a rescue crewman for about 10 years at the point of the Pashabolka incident. His shift started as normal. He got a phone call to say a ship was coming ashore and he was like, oh, whatever, like bullshit. But they went out. Um, they had two helicopters that day. They both flew to the grounded ship. He was put on the deck of the ship and spoke to the captain um, and they began their rescue mission of 22 people total. In the interview, he told of how the static electricity built up so much in the helicopter that every time he touched down onto the deck, the static was discharged and he'd get zapped every time. He said this could happen even in dry, dusty conditions. And so it was like standard procedure to like before you touch, like when you're touching the winch, um, like the cable, you use the back of your hand um, to sort of suss it out. Um, Yeah, so he said this could happen at any point, but this time it was so extreme that when he went to touch the hook for the first time before winching people up from the deck, electricity arced from the hook to his hand and knocked him flat on his back. This is the (laughs) only time that's ever happened to him. And so from then on they're like they would – put the hook down onto the deck to let it sort of earth for a second um, before he touched it, where he'd still get zapped, but it wasn't like literally (laughs) knocking him backwards. So after the first four people were winched onto one of the rescue helicopters, it took off and he had no comms at the time. So old mate was just like, okay, I guess I'm just doing this job by myself. Um, Later it was found out that this second heli was called to a higher priority job because with these, these like East coast lows, there are significant storms happening in Newcastle. And so there was a higher priority job where two people were swept off the road during the storm and unfortunately lost their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that last night I had dinner with um, my father-in-law. He was up from Newcastle, coincidentally, and um, this is something I'll get to soon, but everyone in Newcastle has a Pashabolka story. (laughs) I bet. Everyone. Um, And he was like a, you know, in his mid-20s at the time and he was working as an engineer sort of off Newcastle and someone went out to get like a chalky milk on their break and they're like, holy shit. There's a, there's a ship <laughs> heading towards Newcastle and they all jumped in the car and went to like this lookout to watch it happen and they watched it happen. And they're like, nah, nah, nah. Um, but as they were sitting in their car, which was like rocking side to side because the winds were so heavy, a literal f-ing couch, a sofa was flying down the street in front of them. I've never seen anything like that in my life. Like it wasn't, I, I had to clarify. I'm like, was it in like water? Cause like I've seen that before i'm in brisbane which gets lots of floods but he's like no the wind was blowing a sofa down the street and i'm just like okay that's wild and i guess added a bit of context to how strong this weather was i think what uh what this reminds me of in terms of like the like you said hey uh guys like there, there, there's a ship on the beach um it reminds me of when we talked about the edmund um the the irish coffin ship uh, getting blown into Kilkey Bay, somewhere that like big ships literally cannot go because of this, you know, reef that runs across the opening. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, guy looking out his window and being like, um, <laughs> "That shouldn't be." That is <laughs> bananas. I can't imagine what would be running through my head. Like, I think I'd do one of those like cartoonish shaking of the head and jowls, like, <laughs> like with like, I don't believe it because. It's like rubbing my eyes comically because what the f***, especially because like, you know, Newcastle is a port city All like the CBD is right there. 
And so you just see this big ass ship heading straight towards these buildings. Um, I, I wouldn't compare it to this, especially considering um, no lives were lost, but some people call it Newcastle's 9-11, which, you know, <laughs> I guess if it's all that happens in your town, then all right. But yeah, Everything's okay. relative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after everyone was off the ship, one of the crewmen was running past media to head inside to the nearby surf club because everyone was obviously very drenched. Um Someone from the media yelled out, asking, how are you feeling? To which this crewman stopped, looked, and responded, I'm okay. Captain f***. <laughs> 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 it was just amazing. I was just so glad. Like, I read so many f***ing articles and only one mentioned this. And I was like, yes, I'm so glad I found this because that's incredible and exactly my uh, outside view of it too. Um, glad that the crew's voice is being heard here. Right. Finally. <laughs> um, and just as a quick aside, because there's always at least one racist nugget to be found whenever we talk about Australia, mm-hmm. the person who relayed this in the article I got this from stated that before the crewman replied to this question, they all looked and wondered how the crewman was going to answer and that he probably didn't even understand the question because, reminder, all the crewmen were from the Philippines. But I just like gasped. Like, I this might not be common knowledge, and you know, whatever. But f-ing English is spoken by more than fourteen million people in the Philippines. Ninety-five <laughs> percent of people in the Philippines speak English, <laughs> and yet this this asshole is just like, can he even understand what I'm saying? Like, you motherfucker, he probably he could speak more languages than you. I am certain of it. Like, <laughs> kind of on that note, as a as a teacher with like international students, like I've, I've, I've heard people discuss similar things in the context of, of students from India um, and talking about, you know, Oh, how is their English level? And the students will be like um, native. Like that's, yes. it's the language I speak at home. Like, so yeah, like that, yeah. that's sort of like, I think ignorance about that is, is, is very widespread, unfortunately. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Um, so next the salvage mission, I did uh, provide like an overall sort of visual of it that has like six labels on it. Um, I won't go too much into it. Basically, multiple attempts were made um, to refloat, like salvage and refloat the ship. um, And this was only successful on the third attempt. On June 13th, it was noted that Pasha Bolka's outer hull had a breach and was taking in water, but the inner hull was sound. 2nd of July, oil was detected in the water on both sides of the ship, indicating an oil leak. Um, At this point, it had ran aground three weeks earlier, but it had been spun, so the hull was pointed seaward, but it was still very much stuck on the reef. People were expecting another delay when at 9.37 that night, um, on the 2nd of July, 24 days since she ran aground, Pasha Bolka was finally afloat. It was after another four weeks that the bulk carrier finally left Newcastle proper. Um, thousands of people flocked to the foreshore to watch it head to sea before it was towed to Japan for major repairs. <laughs> yeah, so I get, um, sent you folks a f- picture that showed all of the different attempts and methods used to refloat the Pasha Bolka, including the positions of the four tugboats used in the operation and the three 15-ton anchors laid seaward on Nobby's Beach. Yeah, I've got a question about that. Yeah? I'm seeing here uh, 
Groper Rock. <laughs> oh my gosh, I didn't even see that. Jesus Christ. I'm just asking questions. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh. <laughs> just asking questions. I have no answer for you. Um, that could be a little take-home activity. Yeah. <laughs> not my problem. <laughs> I'm going to find out why it's called Groper Rock, and it's probably something boring, but it might not be. So, But it could be something horrible. Yeah. So, it, we'll see. Yeah, it's like an even split of being something. Oh, sorry. Oh, calm down. It'd be something either horribly racist, sexist, or just some English dude, I think. Right. Um, I feel like it could be like an episode of Parks and Rec. I don't know if you guys have how, how much that is a thing in Australia, but uh, it's one oh, of the yeah, running jokes in that show <laughs> that like everything is named for something horrible that we did to the Native Americans. It's. Pro- I'm assuming I'll, it'll, it'll probably be like find out it's some, I don't know, British uh, colonizer philanthropist named like Archibald Groper Smith or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he also probably was a sex pest as oh, yeah. well because they oh i mean of course that i mean that goes without saying <laughs> i mean that goes without saying Josie. um so finally um last section is cultural memory which is a bit more lighter i might actually start off with the most depressing thing first um because my background is in victimology i'd be remiss to ignore the fact that what's known as the pasha Bolka storm by many did take the lives of multiple people and those who lost their loved ones during that storm believe that, um, you know, whenever we sort of talk about Pasha Bolka, um, while it is objectively funny to look at the pictures of it, there was also this background that a storm occurred where four people in Newcastle proper lost their lives. Three of the four were swept away in floodwaters, while one had um, a tree had its roots undermined by rainwater. And so um, the tree fell and crushed this dude's car as he was coming home from work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then an extended family of five were also killed when a section of the old Pacific highway collapsed during the storm and they were swept away. So that's very depressing, but I'm, I want to respect the the wishes of the their loved ones mm-hmm. and just sort of, you know, bring attention to that. But for the more lighthearted things, there's, that's more or less of all the boat geekiness out of the way. Um, but I want to talk about how the Pasha Bolka is talked about and remembered. I legitimately had not even heard about it until like a few weeks ago <laughs> when someone posted about it on Twitter for its 15 year anniversary um, of it being run aground. Um, my husband who grew up around the area who still has family there remembered that it was a big deal at the time and it talked about it for years. <laughs> During the time of Pasha Bolka's grounding, there was like a little boom of like tourism and like there was a subsequent economic boom, like people would fly interstate <laughs> to look at this shit. Because at that point they didn't know, was it going to become a wreck or was it going to be afloat? And and obviously it was afloat again, but there was one part that um, did come off in the storm. Yeah, so part of the rudder um, broke off during the salvage operation and is now beachside sculpture. Um, I believe I said that in the email. I don't know. Um, it's like a red looking thing. Uh, yes. Which is I, the ship in general that I realize I'm saying. <laughs> okay, yes. Now I understand what this is. Yeah, so the 19 ton rudder snapped off on a rock reef and was later recovered from the seabed. Um, it's titled Grounded, and the bright red sculpture by John Petrie represents the ship's bow and its position as it was grounded back in 2007. So if you stand there, it's kind of like invoking that memory um, of its position. So before it was afloat again, um, there was, 
the the site of the Pasha Bolka was used basically as a billboard by Greenpeace, who used lasers to project anti-climate change slogans onto the whole of the stranded Pasha Bolka, such as coal causes climate change chaos. And this is what climate change looks like. I thought it was a pretty cool way to like use this giant ship and the obvious absurdity of the situation as like a way to drive home that the storm surges that resulted in the Pasha Bolka like running aground, Pasha Bolka being, you know, a coal carrier would become more frequent and severe over time as a result of climate change. But of course, while I respect their efforts, the people who were in power made no have have still have made no um, progress on climate change. Um, in the days following the grounding of the Pasha Bolka, it was listed for sale on eBay <laughs> for a short amount of time and attracted bids of up to $16 million with seller Jono 504 writing in the listing <laughs> that the coal carrier is in excellent condition with a huge capacity for cargo, although it could be converted to a hotel, floating restaurant, casino, or retirement village. <laughs> the views are amazing from just about everywhere on this little beauty, although a chopper, not included in sale, is required for easy passage onto <laughs> and off the boat. Um, of course, this listing, um, I know it might surprise you, but John 0504 was not uh, the legitimate owner of the Pasha Bolka. So this listing was taken down after like a day or so. Um, there was also a play written by Alana Valentine titled Grounded, which explores the collective thrill um, of Pasha Bolka's grounding that dissipated into like a weird hollowness post-salvage. Um, the playwright noted that when she visited Newcastle four years after the incident, it was clear that the story of Pasha Bolka had lodged itself under the city's skin, but everyone had a hard time explaining why. <laughs> a Thai takeaway restaurant even had a giant picture of Nobby's Beach with Pasha Bolka stranded. Everyone she spoke to seemed to have their own story from that time. It's been suggested that the grounding brought the fact that Newcastle is a port city back into focus after so many sort of incorporated it into the background of their day-to-day lives. This aligns with what my husband said about Newcastle, like obviously not to the extent of Pasha Bolka being on a beach, but the site, the site of large ships is not uncommon in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. There's like, there's just like a line of trees between, you know, a highway and the port or like a main road and a port. So um, it was kind of like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> like this is the nature of our, our city, I guess. Um, and Finally, there's just, I've sent these photos to you, but yeah, there's like a former pro junior series surfer, Reese Smith, went to the side of Pasha Bolka's grounding uh, with a camera crew from Waves magazine, and he was able to surf the Bolka break for like 25 minutes before security <laughs> clocked on. Um, but yeah, total dudes rock moments. I couldn't not share that with you guys. Just imagine if like TikTok had been a thing for this, like it would have become just like the biggest attraction. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's something like, even my father-in-law was saying, you know, he had a shitty flip phone with a camera on it, but, you know, terrible. So it was the so many of the photos you get of the Pasha Bulk are actually, like, really well, um, like, done in their composition and everything like that because the people who sort of had the cameras were maybe more, like, um, I guess just hobbyists or whatever. But yeah, so um, that's the Pasha Bolka. I can't find any memorabilia online for sale, but I do know that Pasha Bolka, like stubby or like beer holders, or I don't know what you call them in America, 
You know, like the foamy thing. We call them a koozie. A koozie. Yep. Oh, yeah. No, that's cute. It's better than a stubby holder. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, I think I sent um, a picture of, yeah, a beer in a Pashaboka stubby holder. Incredible areas. Um, but, yeah, so that that's the Pashaboka. Um, any thoughts? Um, I think it's just – it is cool. Um, this, this kind of – the impact that kind of – you were saying that it had on Newcastle and the area and kind of – bringing it back to the front that like, it's still an industrial town. It's like such a, it's tied to that maritime tradition and everything. And like you said, a lot of it happens in the background of most people's lives, mm-hmm. even that live in Newcastle probably. But you know, this kind of brings totally. it back to the front of, of everyone. You, you can't ignore the big vessel stuck on the beach. Yes. Yes. You cannot. <laughs> no, I thought that was very interesting. Oh, cool. I'm glad. Cause I was like, I was like, I find this interesting. I don't know if anyone else would find this interesting. Um, one could almost say that this this bulker, you know, while it may be gone now, it will always be beached in the collective cultural psyche <laughs> of of Newcastle. <laughs> I see what you did there. Very clever. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Newcastle like lost a friend once she left. Right, and like I low key like kind of wish it did turn into a wreck, just because like that would look sick. <laughs> right. Um. But it is a really beautiful beach to go to. Like, it's very popular. Um, So for those people who like to swim there, yeah, maybe not. But, yeah, so I thought that was a fun one. Thank you for letting me sort of geek out on this. I'm glad that there was minimal death involved in this one. But um, still just – and and even there seems to be no death of the ego either when it comes to (laughs) the ship's master, which was really incredible. That is incredible. Um, It's my favorite part. Dudes continue to rock. <laughs> yeah, dudes are undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> Even by um, Reef. Some Reef. I do have a question that's not related to this story necessarily, but it is re- related to one of our older episodes. In our episodes that we did on the HMAS Voyager, uh, I, I don't mm. know if you've listened to those, the person who was responsible for the first commission was a... Uh, I believe his name was John Spicer. Oh, no. Is there any connection that you know of to that? (laughs) Um, I mean, not that I know of. Um, So there's like at least, I mean, there's multiple spices in Australia. Mine are the criminal type of spices um, (laughs) where they were put on penal Mm-hmm. Uh, islands and stuff like that. Um, we don't want to make too many assumptions about Australians, but we kind of thought everybody was there. Right. <laughs> True. <laughs> Josie, you're from Australia. We just thought you were like, yeah, duh. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, this is a bit of an aside, but like I, I there could be because I know that um, my great-grandfather and possibly even his dad um, just started a second life. They like stole their eldest son's identity and like <laughs> – started a second life somewhere one of them ended up in wisconsin actually um oh. <laughs> and died died there so and so sometimes i lay awake at night and wonder if um is it sean spicer the dude who like the, was the white house guy the press secretary I used to like lie awake at, yeah i used to lie awake at night and be like what if i related can i live with that <laughs> and i'm like i don't need to know i don't need to know you know now you mentioned sean spicer I'm, lo- I'm looking at john spicer here and i can see maybe that there's a family connection there so i've got some research to do <laughs> oh no <laughs> what have i done 
All right. Well, um, yeah. Cool. I guess yeah. that wraps things up here. Um, yeah, I'm all done. <laughs> just a note here. I guess I'll just include this in the episode. We'll be getting this one out on Patreon. I think on Patreon we'll put the we'll put the uncensored, unedited <laughs> version uh, on Patreon, uh, and maybe the edited version too. But we'll definitely put the full. The, the, uh, the director's cut, if you will. If I'm if I'm allowed to say this as an American, the no walkers edition <laughs> of the episode. The no walkers, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where everything everything is okay, everything is acceptable, uncensored by the police state of Joseph Robinette Biden. <laughs> <laughs> no cussing allowed, I guess. Well, cool. Um, in that case, uh, again, we'll just say thank you so much for coming on. Definitely, thank you. Um, it was a lot of fun having someone who, you know, we enjoy listening to, you know, your podcasts so much, you know, Australian Gothic and Aww. Hill to Die On. It was really amazing to to have you on the show. So thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Thank I love being on here. And thank you for the work you guys do too. All right. So with that, uh, we'll sign off here and say uh, thank you all for listening. And we will uh, talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to another episode of Beyond the Breakers. We love hearing from listeners, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. We're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email is beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews. Ratings and reviews really help us. They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated. Until next time, take care.